So we're in Matthew chapter 3. We've been working through uh, the book of Matthew. Obviously, we're still at the beginning. And we're just going to look at the baptism of Jesus, which I do realize is only three or four verses. But it's important, especially in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, to not let how short or long something is to determine how important it is, right? Because in the baptism of Jesus, in these short few verses, is basically the entire gospel, okay? And it's a great way to share the gospel with somebody and to remind yourself of it. So that's what I'm going to do this morning. And it's pretty, I think it's one of my favorite little sections of scripture to preach on. And so I'm super pumped. Hopefully you will be by the end, all right? So um, we're in Matthew chapter 3. It covers verses 13 to 17. And I'll read it and then we'll talk through it, okay? So it says, Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. This is John the Baptist, not John the disciple. Okay? John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Crazy thing, right? Jesus, first of all, that Jesus wouldn't need to be baptized at all is an odd thing, which we're going to explore But you can understand John's reaction. John sees Jesus, who he, I believe, recognized already that he was the Messiah. He sees him coming and saying, John, would you baptize me? And he reacts like probably all of us would have, which is, wait a second. I should be baptizing you. Like Peter, who said, wait a second, I should be washing your feet. He's like, this is not, you know, I am not up here, I'm down here, right? So you should be doing... It's like if we had a baptism here and Jesus showed up in the flesh, we would be like, you should do the baptism, right? But that's not what Jesus is there for, okay? And he explains that. And so the other amazing thing here is this event that happens when Jesus comes up out of the water. We have the Holy Spirit descending like a dove, not exactly a dove. It's not like a a bird flew down. and It's like the best description he could come come up with to describe what he saw. Okay, which is the Holy Spirit coming down like a dove. And then this voice, an audible voice of the Father saying, I don't know how it sounded, but it's probably impressive. This is my son in whom I'm well pleased. And so what we see here is one of those places in Scripture where the entire Trinity is represented in one place. And so we should talk about what the Trinity is because it becomes actually very important with understanding why Jesus is getting baptized. We see the three persons of the Godhead in one scene. We see the Father speaking, and he calls Jesus his son. So he identifies Jesus as his son, and, while, and he does this while the Holy Spirit hovers as a dove. All, of course, that's hearkening back to the Spirit hovering over the waters in Genesis at creation. He hovered over the waters or the expanse uh, while creation was happening. So there's, what is the Trinity? There's one God, three persons, all right? This is not a not understandable concept. It is mysterious, (laughs) but it's not hard to understand. They share the same divine essence 
but they exist in three distinct persons. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit all are co-substantial, meaning they have the same substance, and co-eternal, meaning they are all forever, and co-equal, meaning one's not over the other. Jesus submitted himself to the Father while he was on earth, okay? But that doesn't mean he's less than, right? So the amazing thing about God is that there's perfect unity and perfect diversity in God. All self-contained in himself. He doesn't need us. He is perfectly satisfied and happy in himself. He has enough friends. He didn't create us because he was lonely in heaven with nothing to do. You go, oh, I just had this man-shaped hole in my heart. And I'm going to create Josh so that I can be truly fulfilled. That is not what God did. God was perfectly, he is perfect in every way in himself. He is even a perfect community in himself. Perfect unity, perfect diversity. All human analogies of the Trinity break down in ultimately heretical ways. You've probably seen diagrams and stuff. None of them work. They all break down in one way or the other because God is not an analogy for humans. We are an analogy for God. And so anything time we create a, a, a perfect model of, or a metaphor for how, who God is, it starts to fall apart at some point. Because we are not, God is not like us. We are like him, right? This makes it hard, and I think it's why a lot of people struggle with the idea of the Trinity, and they just kind of go, oh, it can't be understood, so why should I care? Because it's God, that's why you should care, right? But it's hard because we like to communicate in metaphors, and as soon as you say, well, it's like, it's hard for me right now not to be like, well, the Trinity is like, and come up with another human kind of picture to tell you, help you understand it. And it never works. It always falls short. It makes talking about it difficult, but we really need to press into it and understand it and recognize fundamentally that God is perfectly satisfied in himself. He doesn't need us. He wants us. He loves us. He reaches out to us. He's merciful to us. He's gracious to us. He chooses to love us, not out of some need in himself or a lack in himself. He chooses to love us because it's who he is. God loves. And so if you imagine the, the Trinity, you got the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Before any of us existed, before he could talk to us or before we were a thing, before there was an earth, before there was a universe, there's the Father, the Son, and the Spirit pouring out love on each other continually all the time. And it's not like a quiet kind of half love. It's the most e intense, infinitely perfect, maximum infinity love, right? Infinity times infinity, like for all you like kids. What's like the biggest number? Infinity times infinity times infinity. That's how much God loves himself. So the problem isn't that God can't be known, it's that God is not like us. He is not analogous to us, but instead we are analogous to him. We are made in his image, 
And when we talk about God, we inevitably try to bring him down into our human limitation and finite perspective, don't we? And as soon as we do that, we're no longer talking about God. We're talking about something we're creating. So though we see Father, Son, and Spirit doing different things, taking on different roles in the affairs of humanity, all three are always involved in all that the others do, as we see here in the baptism. For example, the Father gives the gospel, the Son is the gospel, and the Spirit works in our hearts to believe the gospel. They're all involved all the time. They love to hang out together. The Father is the source, the Son is the mediator, and the Spirit is the perfecter or applier in everything. It's a mistake to think of the Father doing the creating and then the Son doing the saving and the Spirit doing the sanctifying, which is kind of how we talk about it. This is really important in the baptism of Jesus, and it's really important in the way you worship God. Because God gets bigger and bigger and bigger the more you think about this, right? And he breaks out of your human boxes and small-mindedness about him. So look at what the Father says about the Son here. This is so beautiful to me. The Father says in verse 17, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. It's like he packs in as much love and affection in one sentence as he can. He says, it's my son. He's not just his son. He's the beloved son. It's not just I love my son. It's my son is identified. His name is beloved. It is who he is. He is defined by my massive infinity times infinity love for him. That's who Jesus is. So before Jesus is your Savior, before Jesus is the one who you love, before Jesus is your friend, before Jesus is any of those things to you, before all of that, he is the beloved son of the Father. That is who Jesus is. Jesus didn't die for you because he was lonely. He died because he was doing it in obedience to the Father. Like, well, now I feel very unneeded. That's good for you. Being loved and being needed are not the same thing. So the father identifies Jesus as his son that he loves, and then and then he adds on, in case it wasn't clear, <laughs> with whom I am extra very, very most pleased. It's like it's like saying, I am infinitely pleased in him. So God isn't just loving the son begrudgingly because, well, it's who I am. He's super pumped about it. Like he looks and he sees Jesus and he goes, man, isn't he great? I'm so glad we get to just hang out and love each other forever and have been doing forever. This is fantastic. He can't just, he can't contain it. He is very, very, very most exceptionally pleased in the Son who he loves intensely. That's a lot in one sentence. So the Father identifies Jesus as his Son that he loves and takes extra pleasure in. He is well pleased. The Spirit is there as the applier of that love for Jesus. It's like he takes that love from the Father and he dumps it on Jesus constantly, right? 
This is not a newfound love and delight for the Father. Jesus is the eternal Son. We use that phrase for Jesus, the eternal Son, because he is forever. He has no beginning. Yes, his flesh has a beginning. That's Christmas. That's the Christmas story. We just did that a couple weeks ago. But Jesus, the Son, is eternally preexistent. The Father has been loving him for all of time, and he has been delighting in him for all of time. The Trinity is a cacophony of intense love and delight cascading back and forth between the Father and the Son and the Spirit. I think it's very noisy in heaven. Because it's not like when I'm super just feeling all the warm fuzzies for my wife, I'm not bashful about it, right? And this is how, it's, it's a cacophony. I love that word. It's this noisy, kind of loud, uh, it, it invades your space. It's not quiet, and it's like, like a, a tornado of it going back and forth between the Father and the Son and the Spirit. It's not passive. And this has been going on for all of time. You feeling smaller yet? When I think about this, it makes me feel like someone who's been at a, par- at a party and you see all the friends hanging out and they're the cool kids and you just want to be in that group. I feel that way about God, but in a holy way, not in a jealous way. But like, I just want to, I want to just stand in the room and be close to that, that I want to be a part of that. I want to enjoy that, right? So this brings us to the kind of big theological question, which is also, I think, the big point of Jesus' baptism, which is why would he get baptized? If John's, we talked about John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. It was about turning away from sin, turning to God, right? Aligning your life and your heart and your beliefs and your thinking around God instead of yourself. But if Jesus without, was without sin, why would he need to be baptized into John's baptism? What's he repenting of? He does not, he's not a sinner. Good question. I think there are two very connected reasons. Okay, We get a clue here where Jesus says to John when he kind of questions, asks, he's basically asking the same question. Jesus says, we need to do this to fulfill all righteousness. That's verse 15. I think there's two kind of connected reasons. It's almost one reason, but one is though Jesus was without sin, he came in the flesh to identify with us in his death and resurrection. When you died, he died, or when he died, you died. When he rose, you rose. Jesus is identifying with us as a man. Secondly, Jesus' baptism was a prophetic act pointing to his future death and resurrection. He was saying, Remember what baptism means? Just think about, you know, classic Baptist baptism, okay? Where you go under the water, you go, you're standing there as a sinner, you go under, and you, you're dying, okay? It's a picture of your death, and then you come up, and you are resurrected as a new person, as a new creation, right? That's the picture of ba- Jesus is doing that. He's saying, I am I'm getting baptized here with John the Baptist, prophetically saying this is what I'm going to do kind of in real life later, right? I'm going to do this for you. This is what I'm going to do. 
And so I would say it's precisely because Jesus was without sin that he was baptized. He was not baptized for his sin. He was baptized for our sin. In the same way that he didn't die for his own sin, he died for our sin. Okay? Look at 2 Corinthians 5.21. It says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Become the, not just be more righteous, but become the righteousness of God. Who is the righteousness of God? That's Jesus. So we become, we take on the righteousness of Christ. That's how we do that. It's something you and I cannot do, only God can do, specifically only the Son can do. So Jesus was symbolically, prophetically beginning his ministry in the same way that he would end it three years later. Of course, I don't think any of them saw that at the moment. <laughs> they saw this amazing thing happen where this guy gets baptized. Obviously, John the Baptist has a lot of regard for because he was kind of saying, no, no, you should baptize me. And then they baptize him. They have a little discussion. Then they baptize him. He comes out of the water. And what is happening? There's this shiny white thing coming out of the sky onto him and then this voice comes out of the clouds that says this is my son in whom I'm well pleased something's going on it may be just four verses but something serious is going on because that's not something that happens every day I don't know about you but I've never seen this before Galatians 3 23 to 29 helps us too just now before faith came we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. And so then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all the sons of God. Lowercase sons. Through faith. For as many of you... As we're baptized into Christ, have put on Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. In other words, when you became a Christian, you put your faith in Jesus, your whole entire identity shifted and you're no longer identified by these other things that the world identifies people by. You are just a beloved son or daughter of the Father. That's kind of amazing. He calls you son and daughter also. When the eternal son died for your sin, you died with him. Because you're in Christ. And when he was raised three days later, you were raised with him. That's Colossians 2 and 3. You can go read that. So this is what happens when you become a Christian. It's what your water baptism means, by the way. You have put on Christ. You are now in Christ, and God calls you a son and a daughter. So this, think about this. I was just setting you up a minute ago. Like, wouldn't it be great to be a part of that? Wouldn't it be great for the cool kids to look over and notice you and say, hey, come, come on over. You know, me, me, him, me, me, him, right? Me, really? Yes. That cacophony of cascading love in the Trinity 
was totally unavailable to you until this moment when you became a believer, when the Holy Spirit put faith in your heart and you woke up and you saw Father, Son, and Spirit and the love that was in that and you said, I just want to be in there. And he said, well, then come on in. You were brought into what could only be shared by the Son until he died for you. Does that mean you're a member of the Trinity? No. But you're hanging out. You are participating in that glorious unity and diversity. The pronouncement of the Father saying, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased, becomes a pronouncement over you that the Spirit is continually pouring out on you now and forever. This is what you are. This is what the Holy Spirit's doing all the time with you. If you want to know what God's up to, that's what he's up to. He has pronounced over you, you are my son in whom I'm well pleased. You are my daughter in whom I am well pleased. And Jesus goes, well, that's me, but I'll give that to you. You can have it. I'll hand it over so that you can be in my family and come and be a part of this love fest going on in the Trinity, this dance of love that C.S. Lewis calls it. Back and forth, you get to be a part of it. And the Holy Spirit is constantly, always pouring that out on you and saying that to you in one way or the other. So the Father has declared it, the Son has mediated it, and the Spirit is applying it so that you will one day live up to what you already are in Christ. You go, well, I don't really feel all that holy. And sometimes I don't really feel that loved. I don't feel lovable. I don't feel loved. I don't feel like it's a cacophony of cascading love in my life. I feel sort of grumpy or rejected. Or sometimes I feel like I'm not in the cool kids club. And say, well, what the Holy Spirit is doing is he is, while the Father has declared it, and it is who you are, whether you like it or not, (laughs) it is who you are. And then the Holy Spirit says, I'm going to make you live up to that. That's what sanctification is. It's you becoming what you already are. And so in that day when you stand before God, and we all talk, talk about, I want to hear that well done, good and faithful servant. Let me tell you something. You will hear it because God has already said it. He has already guaranteed that the Holy Spirit will carry you to that moment. And every failure and sin and broken thing in your life will become a testimony of his love and mercy over you and not a thing of shame. You will look at everything right now that you're like, I hope no one ever finds out this about me. I hope no one ever hears this thought that just went through my head. Every single thing you feel shame about in that day because of the Holy Spirit's work in your miraculous unfathomable work in your life, you will stand there and go, all of it's a testimony of God's mercy. No shame. None. Even like the worst thing. I know some of y'all are thinking about stuff because I brought it up. You're like, I don't know. There's this one thing. Is that one thing bigger than this? Is it more powerful? 
than Father, Son, Holy Spirit, the God I just described to you? I think not. You are not capable of doing a thing that is greater than that because you're not God. So this is what we, when we talk about sanctification and we're maturing to, in Christ or growing as a Christian or whatever words you want to put around it, that's what it is, how God defines it. It's the Holy Spirit taking Jesus' love for the Father and the Father's love for the Son and the Spirit's love for both of them, and he's applying it to you, and he's saying, come in. Even though you're, you're a mess, Jesus is not a mess, I see his righteousness on you, and I'm just going to make you live up to it by my own power. <clears throat> and so the baptism of Jesus was not just a formalized obedience to a ritual where Jesus sort of went through the motions on our behalf. He said, well, this is required, so I'm just going to do this thing. The baptism of Jesus is the entire gospel, the entire redemption of mankind in one prophetic act where he looked at you all the way through time, made eye contact with you, and when he goes under, he says, that's for you. This is what I'm doing for you. And it's not just the act of baptism. It's what we saw right after his baptism that you're also included in, which is this is not just my son. This is my beloved son. And it's not just my beloved son it is the beloved son that I am totally, exasperatingly, infinitely pleased with. That's how he feels about you right now. So if you're not a Christian, I mean, isn't that, doesn't that sound like fun? I mean, why would you want to stand in the corner wishing you could be in the cool kids club? Wishing you could be experience that kind of love? And isn't it worth giving away everything you have to be in that group of friends? Is there anything you can attain in this life that's, that comes close to that? Well, that's just a great job. You know? I mean, it just sounds silly, doesn't it? This is the gospel. Yeah, it'll cost you your life, but so What? I mean, really. Cost you everything. But so what? I just want to be in. I want to get hit upside the head with that tornado of love every now and then. So the baptism of Jesus is the entire gospel prophetically demonstrated in one event and by the way your baptism is joining with christ in his baptism that's what your baptism meant if you've been baptized that's what it meant you're just saying yeah 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 i'm in in case it wasn't clear <laughs> right i want to be in that crowd right so i'd like to pray for us why don't we stand up if you if you can I don't assume to know where anybody is in their relationship with God this morning, so I want to start by praying for anybody who doesn't know him here in this room and online now or who knows how long this stuff will be out there in the, 
in the internet sphere that whatever version or representation of God you have seen, that this is the real one. That he is big and he is glorious and he is loving and it is who he is and he is inviting you into it. And yeah, it will cost you your life, but who cares? So let's, I want to pray for you first and then I want to pray for the rest of us that we would be reminded because I think we, we, this gets stale in our hearts, doesn't it? As you just go through life, it gets stale and you start to think, well, maybe he doesn't love me like that. And we begin to get tired. We need to be reminded. So I'm going to pray for that in a second. So Lord, I ask you now <clears throat> for anyone that is outside of this love and mercy and grace who maybe only sees the cost and doesn't see the prize. God, or maybe has never actually seen God for who he is. God, I pray that you would reveal yourself to them now, if you haven't already, and that you would give them the courage to simply put their faith in you, to say yes to you, to simply say yes to the invitation. God, that you would do a miracle in that way. God, and whatever lies the devil has put into their heads about who you are or who they are or their place in the world that has confused them and become like a wall between them and you, God, in the sin and rebellion in their own hearts, God, that you would bring them to a point of crisis where they are willing to lay all of it down for you. Lord, would you do that right now? And God, I pray for the rest of us who are We've already crossed that bridge, but our, this simple truth that you are great and you love yourself and you want us to be a part of it, God, that, that would be refreshed in our hearts this morning. And wherever we are discouraged, that you would encourage us with this. God, wherever we are holding on to things that, that seem more valuable on some days than you, God, help us to let go of those idols. God, that you would bring us into a deeper relationship with you where this, we are aware of the Spirit's work in our hearts to draw us up into this. So Holy Spirit, we invite you once again to fill us with yourself, that we would be filled with the Spirit of Christ and his righteousness. In the name of Jesus, amen. God bless you all. See you next week.